Well, that's very interesting. (laughs) My name's Graham Stanton. Uh, I lecture in practical theology, uh, which means I'm really interested in, among other things, the practices of the Christian faith. Like the things that we do and, and how we do things and how they sort of shape our belief as well as being directed by our belief. So I'm really interested this morning, why did you say thank you? I suspect that uh, many of us, not many of us, were able to understand what was just read. Unless you're really the top of the class and just recognised, oh, Acts 2, of course, and, uh, and understood everything that, uh, that Anthea was saying. But I suspect that most of you were as lost as I was. Uh, at one level, of course, it's right for us to be thankful for any revelation from God. Uh, even if it's in a language that I don't know, Uh, Even if I can't understand what's read, I've still got a far better chance of working out the intricacies of New Testament Greek than I do of peering into the mysteries of God unaided. So yes, we are thankful for whatever revelation God might bring. But in another sense, if I don't understand, then how can I be thankful? And perhaps we take Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16. If someone speaks in a foreign tongue, how can we say amen to their thanksgiving since we don't know what they're saying? And of course, the Anglican reformers rightly would be alarmed that the Bible has not been read in English. Read the Bible in whatever language you want, in your private devotions, totally up to you, but in a service of public worship... The pure word of God is to be read in such a language and order as is most easy and plain for the understanding both of the readers and the hearers. So I've called this sermon this morning in praise of translators. And, uh, and, I, and I say this because of what's happening today, uh, and, uh, probably in a few hours' time, in a small community called Gumbalanya, 350 kilometres east of Darwin. Uh, you may know it from its uh, older mission uh, name of Owen Pelly. And in Gumbalanya today, the church is gathering to dedicate uh, the first copies of the Bible in the local language in Gumwingu. It's great news. It's an exciting day. It's not the whole Bible. It's the New Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and Ruth. But it's a great day for the people who speak Gunwingu. This is the culmination of generations of work of translation. The, the translation work begins way back in the 1930s, but then was, uh, was picked up in earnest uh, 34 years ago. Uh, Steve and Narelle Etherington, CMS missionaries, uh, went and lived in Owenpelli, worked with a number of indigenous leaders, and particularly uh, Lois Najmerik, who is now the ordained leader of the church in Gumbalanya. It is a great day. But here's the thing, though. There are only 2,000 people still living who speak this language. Uh, there are about 200 Christians for whom this Bible will become a part of their devotional life. And is it just me? Or are others perhaps thinking, is all that effort really worth it? I mean, why not just teach people English? Like, I don't want to be, you know, sort of, um, what's the word, imperialist about this, but, but seriously, in the global world that we live in, 
English has become uh, not just a major language but a hyper-language. English is not the most widely spoken first language in the world. About 400 million English native English speakers. There are 1.2 billion native Chinese speakers. But English is the largest second language, or perhaps third, fourth or fifth language uh, in the world. About 1 billion people uh, would speak uh, English as their second language. There are more people learning how to speak English in China than there are people who live in the United States. The nation of South Sudan uh, recently uh, became an independent nation. They had 10 uh, local languages and they had to choose a national language. They chose English. None of the local languages are English. Very few of the people speak English. But it's both a unifying language and it's, a, it's an aspirational language. Surely we might say that uh, in a globalised world then why not just teach people English? We can ask the simple question, you know, is it good that there is a New Testament in Gunwinku? Well, clearly yes. The harder question that the former economist in me can't help but ask, uh, could the time and energy and resources poured into producing a New Testament in Gunwinku have been better deployed in other kingdom ventures? Well, thankfully, this is a sermon and not an economics lecture. And so I want us to consider this question of translation not in economic terms but in theological ones and ask what theological virtues are embedded in this action of translating? What vision of God would motivate someone to give their life to translating the word of God into a minority language? What vision of God's purposes might motivate us to consider doing the same. And so let's come to the passage read for us. It was Acts chapter 2 on page 1093 of the English versions in our seats. <coughs> Acts chapter 2 verse 1, the day the, the, uh, when the day of Pentecost came. Or more, more literally, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. Uh, Luke uses a particular phrase here that is used before in chapter 9 of the Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and the days of his departure were being fulfilled. This is a statement that's not just about what happened next, but about a new stage in God's great plan of salvation. Something new is happening, something significant is beginning. So too... Uh, As in Luke 9, so too here in the beginning of Acts, this day is more than just another day in Jerusalem. This day, this particular day of Pentecost, marks this critical moment in human history, a new stage in the outworking of God's great plan of salvation. And it's clear that something special is happening because God shows up. Of course, God is always present, but there are uh, numerous times in the Old Testament where God specially makes his presence known. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses in fire in a bush that doesn't burn up. In Exodus 19, the Lord descends upon uh, the mountain on Mount Sinai in fire. In Ezekiel 37, 
the breath of God blows over the valley of dried bones to bring life to this vast army. God announces that the time of judgment on the people of Israel is coming to an end. And the promise of new life through the breath of God comes. And so here in Acts, on what might have started out as just another day in Jerusalem, as verse 2 says, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. God shows up. And when God shows up, at the heart of the action is this miraculous work of translation. Verse 4, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And again, as readers of the Old Testament, we're not surprised because we know that when the Spirit of God comes, prophecy usually follows. Eldad and Medad prophesy in the Israelite camp in Numbers 11. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he prophesies in 1 Samuel 10. The Spirit of the Lord anoints his servant to proclaim the gospel of freedom and favour in Isaiah 61 and in Luke 4. So also here in Acts 2. The disciples who only a few weeks earlier were hiding behind locked doors, now they are out in the open, boldly declaring the wonders of God. And clearly they're speaking in human languages. Whatever's going on in the later references to tongues later in Acts and in 1 Corinthians, clearly in Acts 2 we are talking about known human languages. Verse 6, each one heard their own language being spoken. Verse 8, each of us hears them in our native language, or literally the language in which we were born. Verse 11, after listing 15 different people groups, all of them say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And note also that this is a miracle of speech, not just of hearing. Verse 7 says, aren't those who, speak, who are speaking Galileans? It's like saying, aren't those who are speaking foreign languages Australian tourists? Because Australian tourists are known for not knowing other languages. My family spent uh, four days in St. Petersburg in December. We had three words uh, in Russian. We could say Previt, Spasiba and Dasvedanya. Um, hello, thank you and goodbye. But we feared that the way that we were saying goodbye made us sound like Russian gangsters about to push somebody under a train. <clears throat> Here on the day of Pentecost... The Spirit of God does this miraculous work of translation. Even these Galileans, when filled with the Spirit of God, are able to speak in different tongues so that people from across the known world would hear the wonders of God in their own language, in the languages of their birth. And of course we read this story and it's hard not to recall Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 verse 1, when the whole world had one language and a common speech, but as an act of judgment God comes down, confused their language so that humans 
would not understand each other. But of course, Acts 2, it, it's not a reversal of Babel. Rather, it's, it's an accommodation to Babel. It's accommodate, God is accommodating to a post-Babel world. The same story throughout Scripture. God willingly enters into fallen human experience and weaves his work of grace and new life. And that's the strong note here. That the gift of the Spirit results in multi-vocal praise. The work of Pentecost, I had previously thought that here was this work of unity, of binding people together, and yet there's already some kind of unity. We can't imagine that these people have been wandering around Jerusalem being able to say, hello, thank you, goodbye, and nothing else, totally confused as to what the heck is going on. They probably all spoke Aramaic. They probably also spoke Greek. It would have been just as just as easy, I imagine, for the Spirit of God to have inspired the disciples to proclaim the wonders of God in Aramaic and inspired the people to understand what's being said. But God didn't do that. It seems that God's plan was not just for the crowds to hear, but for them to hear in their own tongues, to hear the wonders of God in the language of their birth. So why? Why? What is it about God and God's plan that puts a miracle of translation here at the hearts of his plan of salvation? Obviously there's so much that could be said, but I want to think just about translation in relation to creation and redemption. That in a post-Pentecost world, I want to say that translation is an appropriate response to God's work of creating all human beings in his image and of God's promise of salvation that comes to every member of the human race. God's work of original creation uh, affirms universal human dignity. God's ongoing work of providence affirms that every human culture is a fit vehicle for the divine promises. And God's work of redemption is offered to all, addressing each one personally, not just overhearing what might be spoken to others. In Romans 3.29, Paul asks and answers his own question, is the God God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. That theological statement of the gospel of grace for all nations is demonstrated in this theological action of translating the scriptures of inspiring the apostles to declare the wonders of God, not just in Hebrew, but in the languages also of the Parthians and of the Medes and of the Elamites and of all the others who were in Jerusalem on that day. And you know, this expression of universal human dignity is particularly significant here in Australia in the work of translating the Bible into indigenous languages. Meredith Lake has written a a magnificent uh, book, um, uh, The Bible in Australia. 
And, uh, and in it, uh, she tells the story of Threl, uh, Lancelot Threlkeld. Lancelot Threlkeld, born in London, uh, working as a circus actor, gets called to the mission field and in 1825 arrives in Australia and he settles in uh, Awabakal country, Lake Macquarie, on the central coast of New South Wales. There he meets Biraban, an, an indigenous man, and for the next 17 years he spends learning and documenting Awabakal language and culture, including an early translation of the Gospels of Luke and of Mark. This is what Threlkeld said about his work. It says, If it could be proved that the Aborigines of New South Wales were only a species of wild beast, there could be no guilt attributed to those who shot them off or poisoned them. why somebody would have to write that sort of statement. Instead, Threlkeld's work of translation was for him a convincing proof that they have an equal share of intellectual power with others of the human race. Meredith Lake says of these early translators, in this sense they stood head and shoulders above other colonists. They not only assumed the equal humanity of indigenous people, they imagined their long-term survival as linguistically distinct communities. A thoroughly modern idea that is so threatened by our economic rationalist business plan culture. Today in Gumbalanya, the church is bearing witness to our belief in the equal humanity of Gumwingu speakers and not only imagining but contributing to enabling the long-term survival of a linguistically distinct community. Translation enables people to hear the wonders of God in their heart language, in the language of their birth. And today in Gumbalanya, Gunwingu speakers can hear God speaking to them personally rather than having to overhear as he speaks to whitefellas. So will we be translators? Will our, mission, our ministries offer the promises of the gospel to every human person And will we regard every human culture as a fit vehicle for the promises of God? Will we love every individual that we minister to so that we would make every effort to communicate the gospel in their heart language, to share Christ within their culture, within their thought forms, to speak to their hearts? And here I'm thinking primarily about our efforts every day to honour and to enter all of the different cultures that are around us. The materialistic business person, the long-term unemployed, the transgendered academic, the anxious teenager, the anti-vaxxing vegan, the pokey-playing shift worker, Would we love all the people who come across our paths that we might share the wonders of God with them 
in ways that resonate deeply with their particular hopes and fears. And then perhaps would some of us commit to pursuing the work of Bible translation, to concentrate in Greek, to work hard at Hebrew, to love one of the 3,787 people groups in the world with no scripture in their own language. To love one of the 1,121 people groups in the world with only portions of scripture in their own language. To love one of the 1,521 people groups in the world with only the New Testament in their heart language. And would we pray for this work of translation to continue and to prosper for the glory of God? We're going to watch a video uh, from these CMS translators, Steve and Narelle Etherington. So they finished their ministry and as they urge others to take up the task. And then we're going to read Acts 2 verses 1 to 13 in English, for which we can be most thankful. Amen.